Welcome to Fluency with Dr. Darrell Cooper. I am your host, Dr. Darrell Cooper. Fluency is a show where we will talk about things that come to mind. This show is a unscripted. I mean, it can't be fluency and we have trouble talking about different things, right? So thank you so much for joining us. Sit back and enjoy this audio experience. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Fluency. And today, I am very grateful, blessed even, (laughs) to be joined by the amazing, talented, smart, witty, strategic, (laughs) the one and only... Dr. Antonio C. Kyler. Wow. Thank you very much, Dr. Cooper. Uh, I've never had an introduction so wonderful. So I really appreciate that. I mean, I'm open for birthdays, bat mitzvahs, quinceañeras, <laughs> whatever you need. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome to Fluency. Thank you for having me. It's, it's a, a great honor and a privilege. I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you. I am too. I uh, have admired your work for quite a few years now. I feel like every time I read a report, uh, specifically around uh, philanthropy or uh, what arts organizations, performing arts organizations, can do to respond more to the moment of now, specifically around equity, inclusion, diversity, accessibility. Your name pops up on so many reports. And, you know, you're so prolific in putting out not just the reports, but books as well. Um, But before we get too deep in that, for those who may not be as familiar familiar with you as I am, uh, could you please share maybe your origin story? Oh yeah, you know, oh, I love that question because it makes me think about um, Marvel and the mutants, right? Like everyone has an <laughs> origin it. story, um, and so yeah, I grew up. I was born and raised in Winter Haven, Florida which is uh, right between Orlando and Tampa um, in in a rural county called Polk County, uh, November 29th, 1978. Yes, I'm not afraid to share my age. I am uh, seven years until 50. That's how I like to say it. Um, And I grew up in a, a pretty religious family. My dad was a pastor. My mother is an evangelist. Um, my dad has transitioned and he is no longer with us physically, but he's certainly, you know, um, I feel his presence all the time. And I feel like, you know, he's there when I'm engaging with the ancestors and, you know, having conversations with them about ways in which I should move. Um, and so one of the things that um, was beneficial for me about growing up in such a religious Household um, is the exposure to to music at church. We had this incredible choir. We had wonderful soloists and incredible singers. And I think, 
you know, when you are, there's like this quotient, um, when you're in a space and you're surrounded by so much good music and so much good singing that you can't help but be impacted by it. And so slowly but surely as a child singing in the children's choir and then, you know, maturing into um, adolescence and, and teenage, I, I started to go discovering my singing voice. And um, it was a tool that I didn't realize at the time was going to be very instrumental in helping me to navigate the world as an adult um, and opening doors for me. And um, yeah, and so I went, I went to a performing arts high school study voice. I was the, the um, so the, another piece of this origin story is um, being in spaces where I might be the only black person or the only black male. Um, and so I went to a performing arts high school for voice for three years. I was the only black male um, and had to get comfortable with that. And at first I was like, I'm not feeling this. Um, I, I need to go back to my home high school where there were more black males that I could, you know, be friends with and hang out with. And my dad was like, Nope, you beg to go to this school. You're staying there. <laughs> and, um, in retrospect, he was, he was right. Right. Like, um, cause going to that school, um, getting the education I received um, in music and in singing was so instrumental in preparing me for my college uh, auditions. And um, I ended up getting into several schools, one of which was Stetson University, where I got a scholarship to study voice um, and for singing bass and baritone in the choir, uh, but also participating in opera productions and musicals and, and chamber music concerts and that kind of thing. And then got to my senior year uh, and was like, I don't know that I want to be a performer. Um, it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of work. Um, and my voice professor said, have you considered, you know, arts administration? You managed your senior recital so well. I've never had a student, you know, manage their senior recital as well as you did. Um, maybe you should consider a career in arts administration. And so I was kind of uh, frustrated that she hadn't said this to me earlier because I was like, now I feel so behind because this arts administration thing is the way to go. And so I jumped right into it after that discussion with her. I went and um, applied immediately to get into the master's program in arts administration at Florida State. At the time, my intention was to become an artistic administrator for an opera company. Um, I, you know, I had this um, knowledge about opera. In fact, I had some professors who said, you know, you have an encyclopedic knowledge about opera, like, you know, I've you know, never had a student who knew so much about opera. And in fact, I, I remember my junior year, I um, took opera lit. And one of my professors said, why are you taking that? You could teach it. Wow. Yeah. I, and I was like, oh, really? You think like, uh, you know, I was like, well, you think I could teach the guy? And so, um, but I said to her, you know, I, I don't know everything there is to know about opera. That's why I'm taking the class. Right. Like, Whereas they, you know, she saw um, this expansive knowledge in comparison to uh, other students. I saw that I still had these gaps in my knowledge and understanding that I needed to fill. And so um, a part of, of what I would say is one of my superpowers, since we're talking about my origin story, is the active cultivation of intellectual humility. Right. And and sometimes people have misinterpreted. Oh, can you run that back for people? Yeah, yeah. Like the active pursuit of intellectual humility. And and at times people have interpreted that as um imposter syndrome. 
but it's not imposter syndrome because um, I, the way that I am, I work hard to avoid imposter syndrome. And so what I tell myself is, Antonio, you've put in the effort, you've done the work, you deserve to be at this table. You, you have, you, you deserve to be in this space, right? Um, I was in a meeting and I was looking around last week and I was like, oh my gosh, here we are again. I'm the only black male. And so even that showing up in my skin and my gender and my identities, uh, whatever they are intersectionally as the only person in the space that looks like me, that thinks like me, that feels like me, um, that too was a practice that I had to get used to because, um, the multiverse had it in order that I would be in these spaces, even as an adult, even now. And I needed to be um, able to show up in those spaces and not be tripped up over being the only one like myself so that I can make space actively for other folks. Um, and so definitely, I, I would say that a superpower is intellectual humility. Um, I got to grad school and I enjoyed it so much at Florida State um, that I decided to stay to get the Ph.D., um, and I finished that in four years. Um, and then I decided to go into higher education arts fundraising and um, did that for a year and um, was offered my first teaching job. And 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 um, now I'm about to enter my 15th af- academic year um, and still love being an educator. The research is one of the things that I love the most about what I get to do, um, you know, just because it's an opportunity to explore, to um, maximize my own intellectual capital. And, um, you know, affixed to that idea of actively pursuing my intellectual humility is the idea that I'm still discovering what I'm capable of, right? Like I, I, the joy of the work that I do is that I have not convinced myself that I am capable of doing anything. I always start from the space of, can you do this? Do you have the resources and tools available to do this well? Um, why are you doing this? And then how are you going to do it? Right. Um, and so um, what I love is by approaching it that way, I'm constantly surprised at what I'm capable of. Oh, thank you so much for sharing all that. You know, you said something earlier about, you know, what do I bring to the table? And at this point, Dr. Kyler, you kind of are the table. (laughs) Let's be real. Like, if you start to think about the cultural capital, the intellectual capital, the social capital, you, you are the table. Uh, you know, you are a certain standard specifically within academic research in these fields. And you've worked very hard to position yourself to be there. Uh, what were some of those steps like for you to get to that sort of, you know, mezzo area of what it is that we work in? Wow. Well, first, you know, thank you again. Um, Wow. Like, you know, hearing that assessment of what I've done, um, I really appreciate uh, because I was talking to one of my close friends yesterday. And sometimes I'm so um, not sometimes I 
I am hyper-focused on the process. And so I'm less attached to the outcome. And so I don't always um, look at that 360 degree level. I'm kind of like stuck at, well, the process is this, right? Like I'm working the process, I'm refining the process and I'm practicing the process. And so um, I'm less um, tied to um, the outcome or what kind of comes as a result of the work. But one of the first steps was realizing and accepting that I had to take ownership for my academic capital. And what I mean by that is conducting research, exploring, um, maximizing your intellectual capital. If you do it and manage it in such a way, you build your own personal academic capital, which is a certain amount of freedom and grants you a certain amount of freedom to um, seek to be in spaces that you want to be in. Um, And that wasn't always um, easy because, you know, my first couple of positions academically uh, as a professor weren't at Research One institutions. And so teaching was um, a a higher priority over research. And so I had to find a space where I could start, even if it was very minimally, um, going back to my dissertation to begin um, really taking that research agenda that I set forth in the dissertation and really trying to do something with it. And so, um, you know, I, um, I left FSU uh, working in higher education fundraising to go to SCAD, Savannah College of Art and Design. That's a teaching institution. Um, after SCAD, I went to American University, which was, um, I think, a research three or two. It wasn't research one. And... Um, then I went to SUNY Purchase, which was also a teaching institution. But what I was doing, what I was committed to doing was at least presenting a paper or at least giving a presentation at major conferences in my field to make sure that I was a part of the discourse that was happening around educating arts administrators, um, achieving diversity, equity and inclusion in um, arts administration um, and, and, you know, any kind of number of topics that might have come up that I thought or saw as being connected to my research agenda. And then I was fortunate enough to be invited back to my alma mater at Florida State University, which is a research one institution where um, my AOR or my assignment of responsibilities, 40% of my job was to do research. And I thought, oh, this is great. Thank God. Right. Like, so um we had this requirement of um, producing two peer-reviewed journal articles a year. And so I started out by creating a long list of research questions that I have that I wanted to explore. And, um, you know, I was able to manage it that way. And um, then um, to the point that there was one year, I remember the goal was for you to have two peer-reviewed journal articles. And one year I had five. Um, And so Also, the second thing I would say was being strategic, right? So I'm typically writing ahead of the year that things will be published. And so, for example, like I spent last year writing things that will be published this year. And um, in addition to my first edited volume that will be out um, either next month in April or in June, which is um, Arts Management, Cultural Policy, and the African Diaspora. Um, it's a book uh, published by Paul Grave and Macmillan. Um, I have two peer-reviewed journal articles under review and um, four book chapters, one of which is co-authored. And so now I'm thinking about 
for this year, I'm writing for the things that will be published next year. And so that's that's been the strategy. Um, I've been fortunate to be have that incentivized through my job at Florida State University, which is a research one institution. But um, I think another uh, the third thing would be is having a research agenda um, that you are interested in. Right. Like having things that you are. And I was just telling my cultural policy class this yesterday that um, my goal is for them to choose research topics that they're passionate about, that they're interested in, because if you're not interested in what you're studying, um, you're not going to be as successful. And when you have this curiosity, when you cultivate this curiosity, which I think is my second superpower, uh, this like curiosity of of um, being able to look at something and to wonder Right. Like when the Black Panther movie came out in 2018, I saw that movie 11 times. Right. I I don't have a problem admitting that, Um, you know, about five of which I saw in the theater and then six of which I saw probably on flights, you know, um, but I was counting. And it was probably somewhere between uh, seven and nine that I started asking myself questions like, what is the implication of this movie for my own research? And the by asking myself that question, I kind of came to this answer about how the African diaspora was represented throughout the movie, where you had um, actors and actresses from the continent of Africa, as well as, um, you know, people of African descent from South America, and then, of course, the U.S. And then that's the re- way that I came up with this edited volume that will be out, um, Arts Management, Cultural Policy in the African Diaspora. I came up with the question, what is the state of arts management and cultural policy across the African diaspora? And then there were about 10 sub-questions in support of that big question. And I invited um, authors from across the diaspora to contribute chapters uh, responding to some of those questions. And so, um, yeah, being curious about things and um, having a research agenda around those things. And uh, already I'm thinking about, you know, the next four or five edited volumes that I plan to publish over the next five or six years. And so um, being present enough to be thinking futuristic at the same time, I would say is another part of the process, but managing all of that strategically in such a way that you're being productive in a way that's satisfying to you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, you said so many different things that were like intriguing within that piece. Um, I'm curious, just because you brought up Black Panther. <laughs> I mean, we have been talking origin stories. Although I ask people that, um, I'm, I'm wondering, have you heard anything, especially being in Florida, about uh, Disney and the funding of like the Don't Say Gay Bill? No, I haven't. I haven't seen that connection um, made yet. And um, that's a really good research question. Honestly, I think that that's something that could be explored in cultural policy research. You know, what are the connections to Disney and um, the don't say gay bill, which is really, really problematic. Like, um, you know, I always thought that the GOP was the party of less government. And yet, the GOP has decided that they are the arbiters of what should happen in our cultural landscape. Um, And, you know, just the idea that it's like, are we like reverting back to where we were? Because um, 
why are we targeting gay people? Why are we targeting trans people? Why are we targeting women? Why have we decided that we should be managing what women do with their bodies? Right? And so what it is a lesson in for me is that when we as historically marginalized and oppressed people do not stand together, we create the space for um, you know, white supremacy and patriarchy and um, all of these things to keep us divided um, in these spaces and these like false kind of um, silo, silos, allowing us to not get on the same page and, and, and um, really work together to dismantle the system. Um, if, if I don't see myself represented in the cause of women who are pro-choice, right? Like if I don't see myself in that um, somehow serving as an accomplice to women who want to have the choice, right? Then how can I expect them to see themselves in my fight for racial justice or for um, justice for people with disabilities or people who are same gender loving, right? And so um, if I had one um, superpower that I wish that I, 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 I had, it would be to unite all people who are historically marginalized and oppressed wherever they are on this planet, to hold those people who are benefit from that oppression and that marginalization accountable for, for that. And the thing is, you know, right, like power is democratic. Power has no investment in right or wrong. Power just is. And so it's not a matter of those who are benefiting from marginalization and oppression having more power than those of us who are marginalized and oppressed, right? Um, it's just a matter of us deciding that we are going to act in our power and do something um, for the good of all of us, right? And the thing is, we have the moral authority. The moral authority is on our side to use our power to the benefit of all of us. And those of us who benefit from marginalization and oppression until they can see the ways in which their own humanity is in jeopardy, is in threat from activating the privileges that come along with them having these, um, the power that they have from oppression and marginalization, um, we cannot count on them to do the right thing. You know, I, I could not agree with you more. And this idea of superpower, <laughs> I think I'm going to start including that. It's a nice through line with the origin story question. Um, you mentioned earlier one of your superpowers is curiosity. Mm-hmm. What are you most curious about today? Oh, that's you know, such a what's great waking question. Dr. Kyler up in the morning or keeping Dr. Kyler up at night? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, and I have to say, I want to give some shout outs to my dad because my dad um, encouraged my curiosity. Like, uh, I really appreciate that when I was a child, I always had that, well, why? 
right? Like, and that my dad didn't see that as disrespectful or as a threat. He understood that I was really trying to understood or understand why things were the way that they were or why a rule was the way that it was, what was the intent behind it, what was the goal behind it. And so he could see once I was satisfied with the answer, you know, I would move on. And so the thing that I'm most curious about now today are humans, um, how we how we support one another, the barriers to us supporting each other, um, this idea of individualism versus collectivism, which one is really the most beneficial for all of us, um, you know, as it relates to the work around uh, access, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I use ADEI versus JEDI or IDEAS or any of the other, um, you know, nice uh, creative ways of, of, of putting those constructs. And I do so because you cannot get to diversity, equity, and inclusion without access. And I don't want to put access behind anything because we have to actually start the discussion with access. And so that's why I put access first. Um, But I'm really curious also about, um, you know, how long does this, um, this energy that was produced as a result of George Floyd's killing to propel us all forward, right? Like this, it was, it was, there's something that I see in his, the sacrifice that he, he didn't necessarily asked to make this sacrifice of his life, right? But he, 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 this, his life was taken from him in a very sacrificial way. And um, the energy and the chasm that opened up as a result of the loss of his life how long does that energy and that effort to move things, to accelerate things for for the good of humanity, how long does that last, right? Before something like white appeasement um, sets in and undermines the racial justice work that we're doing, because we're already seeing the counter protest, right? Like we're, um, and it's not just about racial justice, right? Like it's about justice for bi, gay, lesbian, uh, same gender loving folks and trans folks as well. Like this is this, like there's this box that has been opened as a result of the loss of his life. That's asking all of us, how can we do things differently? Right? Like how can we step away from capitalism as it functions right now and ask it to be more human centered or move towards anti-capitalism Right, because anti-capitalism is a point um, on our journey to post-capitalism. Because there are too many people who do not benefit from capitalism as it works right now, and so I think that at some point there's going to be a challenging of the system to um, hold it responsible for being more beneficial to more of us as humans. And so I'm curious about many, many things. Um, and my best friend would probably tell you that I'm curious about most things. And so um, when I do express that I'm not curious, like it's a, a big shock for him that, what, you're not curious about that? And I'm like, eh, you know, and it's probably because I've already examined it from as many perspectives as I can to to kind of come to the conclusion that I can't drain any more kind of like, you know, squeeze any more curiosity out of this, this piece of thing. So I just need to move on to whatever is next. That was amazing. Um, I want to thank you for bringing your father into this space. 
and calling for the ancestors as well. You mentioned him earlier during the conversation, and I wanted to say that then. But I cannot stress enough how important that piece is in this collective movement piece of the of the puzzle. You know, um, how can how can those who are now jazz excited, energized? and would love to follow more of the work that you're doing, how can they do so? Oh, that's great. Um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, it is the primary social media platform that I use. I, I, um, I did at one point have Facebook and Instagram for my consulting practice, but um, after some careful reflection about um, ethics, um, I just don't feel comfortable, um, you know, proselytizing about the importance of a human-centered capitalism or um, access, diversity, equity, and inclusion or anti-oppression and, and, and using those platforms to disseminate, you know, information about myself. So, um, you know, my social media uh, manager and I had a discussion and I was like, I, you know, and, and I will say that, um, you know, we've been partners in this discussion all the way through. Cause I, even starting out, I was resistant. I was like, I don't think I need to do that. And he's like, well, you should give it a try. Right. Like, you know, there's, it's a, another way to connect with people. And, but um, you can follow me on LinkedIn or connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, and also you can um, visit my website at Florida state university or the university of Michigan. Um, those are always spaces that I um, have the, the, the newest work that I'm working on. Um, um, public, uh, publicize on. And, um, like one of the things that uh, I just finished up is, um, a paper about the restitution of African cultural property from France. Um, a colleague and I, Kamal Patterson, he's a co cultural property lawyer. We co-authored a paper and we've co-presented this paper now several times, um, on France and the restitution of African cultural property. So that's something that I've become interested in over the past three or four years. And, um, uh, really also more work around ADEI have a book chapter coming out soon, um, about the challenges and opportunities in the, the creative sector, particularly in the U S creative sector around access, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and so, but I, I probably think that LinkedIn is probably the best way to uh, keep in contact and because I'll be sharing things. And as much as I can share for free, um, I always try to do that open access. You know, I hear you. You better take down Empire. <laughs> you better do it because it will strike back. And, and let me say this. It is not keeping your name from getting out there uh, because you're very purposefully staying busy in so many other platforms and um, just doing the work. So thank you. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for doing the work. Thank you frankly, for paving the way for young uh, practitioner scholars like me to kind of, and intersectional scholars to make our way through the academy and other space. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for taking up the mantle. Um, because yeah, like I, 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 I've always been that person. I don't want to be the only one in the room. 
right? Like I want to, anytime I can make space for other folks, um, uh, and, and I, I don't care, you know, who you are, as long as you're prepared to show up and contribute, I, I want to be a part of doing that. And, um, you know, I, I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to be a part of, of Fluency and to have this conversation with you today. Um, and it's just really good to know that um, that there's someone of your incredible spirit and intelligence um, and passion for arts and culture who's watching and who's seeing and making those connections. So I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you too, Dr. Kyler. And with that, that's a wrap. Thank you. <laughs> you have just listened to another episode of Fluency with Dr. Darrell Cooper. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please be sure to follow us on all major streaming platforms as well as on all of our social media channels for Cultural Innovation Group and Darrell Cooper. And remember, the journey to liberation starts with loving yourself. And those are doctor's orders.